to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Patria King, and welcome to the show. It is super, super exciting to have you here. Uh, so, Patria, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing lately. Oh, I think since uh, the bushfires and then COVID-19, we've been busier than ever. Uh, because we moved a lot of our online, uh, our face-to-face programs to online programs, and that worked really well. I did a, a session every evening at half past seven, which was just a little chat and then a deep relaxation practice every night for three months. And I think we had uh, over 150,000 views on uh, on those evenings. So there was such a huge need at this time with so much trauma in our communities that we really wanted to find useful ways of still being able to connect with people and provide some education and support. Right. So how do you find those people? Are they people who've had some contact with you in the past or people who've read your books or people who come to the centre? How do people connect with you? Look, I think, you know, I've been doing midweek conference with Richard Glover on the ABC for over 20 years now. And so I think a lot of people have kind of heard bits and pieces over the years. And, of course, I've just been around a long time now, old and grey, you know, and I've been doing this work for such, such well, for over three decades. So, um, and also I think people have been in such great need uh, that certainly the online things have been shared and shared and shared, so it's gone out to ever-widening communities that way. But before COVID-19, we were sending teams of four people into a town that had been impacted by the bushfires. So, say, Lake um, Conjola, we had four people go in for a week, a massage therapist, a counsellor, a deep relaxation person, a support group person, and they were to be there for a week, a month, for three or four months. And then anyone who was really dealing with trauma would come to the five-day program here in Bundanoon, the Moving Beyond Trauma program. And that was working really, really well. And then, of course, we had to stop because we wanted to build a long-term relationship with those communities so that they felt that we weren't just there as a flash in the pan at the beginning, but that we would walk this journey with them to a better place. So we're looking forward to resuming that as soon as the as soon as we're able to in um, probably in July August. Um, but we've had many people also come uh, to our online programs through this time from the bushfire impacted areas, and so that's been really useful as well. Okay, so for the people who maybe don't know a lot about Quest for Life and Moving Beyond Trauma, the programs, can you tell people a little bit about what you do at the centre and how those programs work? Yes, look, um, this work really started out of my own experience, not only of leukaemia when I was 33 and I was meant to die and obviously didn't, uh, but my diagnosis of leukaemia came just after my brother's suicide And there'd been a lot of other traumas in my life, domestic violence, sexual assault, years in hospital, chronic pain, uh, that's leaving out all the colourful things. So I'd had a lot of uh, trauma really from childhood on. And when I was sick with leukaemia, 
I was given a safe space, you know, which was a little cave in a monastery outside of Assisi in Italy. And I spent 18 hours a day in that little cave. And this old priest who was the head of that monastery used to cook for me every evening. And I always felt that there needs to be places where when you're in the midst of anguish, that you can be heard and really deeply heard because sometimes we don't know what we think until we hear what we say. So we need that kind of generous listening that will allow a person to talk themselves into meaning. And that we also need to be able to educate people in what happens in the brain when you're traumatised and how the brain then heals because we know now from neuroplasticity uh, that the brain has these amazing recuperative um, opportunities and that every day we produce 700 brand new little neurons in the brain and they can be trained to go in new directions that we don't always have to do what we've always done. And so we're beginning to understand how the brain heals from trauma, the brain and nervous system. And then if you educate people in that, it's, it's so empowering because we, we meet so many people who are told it's never going to get any better. You know, you're going to have to learn to live with this uh, because you're always going to feel traumatised. And it's just not the truth. And we've seen so many people, more than 50% of people go back to work after they've been through our programs and they may have been off for months or years in some cases. So we know that the brain can heal and we need to get rid of these old messages that... Uh, really just make people feel helpless and hopeless. Right. And really there's so much can be done. Okay. So with these programs that you run, the five-day Moving Beyond Trauma, how do you access those? Can anyone come or do you need to be referred? And what happens once you're there? <laughs> well, you know, we were very grateful to uh, have this centre 15 years ago when um, it came on the market and at that time the Quest for Life Foundation had only $15,000 in the bank and they wanted $1.5 But some wonderful people came forward and made it possible. So we've been in this centre for the last 20 years and it accommodates about 30 people at present. We're just about to build more accommodation, uh, which I might talk about later. And so when people arrive, many of them come now through their insurer. So for our trauma program in particular, the Moving Beyond Trauma program, because our participants achieve such outstanding outcomes, the insurers are very happy for police and, and uh, firefighters, paramedics to come here when they have PTSD, although we call it PTSI, that it's post-traumatic stress injury to the brain and nervous system rather than a disorder. It might lead to a lot of disordered um, behaviours and feelings and uh, experiences for people, but it's actually an injury and just the same as you wouldn't expect to carry a bucket of water with a broken arm, you can't expect to function normally when the brain and nervous system has been traumatised. And so when people come here, I must say on the first day, uh, they often don't even want to make eye contact, they feel very anxious they're coming to be with a bunch of other people who obviously are feeling traumatised as well. Um, and that all dissolves within 
certainly the first 24 hours, but usually much quicker than that for most people. Because people feel like, oh, I finally arrived somewhere that's safe and where it's just about me and that I can focus on healing myself and that I don't have to get it right for the family, I don't have to put on a face, I can just be me. And so over the five days that they're with us, you experience this extraordinary transformation that takes place as even when we say to people, you're not your brain, you have a brain and yours has suffered an injury because of the experiences that you've had. And that's a revelation because people think they are the consequences of their trauma. And it's just that they've got a traumatised brain. But we're more than our brain. And if we learn to re-engage the neocortex just behind our eyebrows, which is all about our higher functioning, our personality, motivation, um, our ability to have perspective, to bring history to the, the present time, all of that is neocortex, whereas the amygdala and hippocampus limbic system is the primitive brain, and that's often what's running uh, a person when they've been traumatised because those traumatic memories are laid down very deeply into the hippocampus in the, in the brain and cause us to continue to reactivate. And we need to re-engage the neocortex so we can learn to respond, not react to things that happen to us. So over the five days, people, the volume goes up and up and up as there's more and more laughter and more conversation. And at the by the end of the program, no one wants to go home. They all want to live here, <laughs> which is why we're building another 24 accommodation units and the infrastructure so that people can do the five-day program and when that's complete, they can move in for four weeks to actually put into practice everything that they've learned in those five days. And I'm absolutely convinced that they'll completely recover. And they can repeat that four-week program up to three times. I'm, I'm convinced people will completely recover from trauma uh, in that nurturing, supportive environment in which they are supported to implement all of the things that help heal the brain and nervous system. Yeah, okay. So you're going to have a lot of people potentially living on site, so up to 24 people living on site. Do the staff live on site as well or does everyone kind of come in at, at the beginning of the day and kind of does it? It's seven days a week though, right? Um, at the moment it's five days a week in that our staff, our administrative staff are here five days a week and when we have a five-day program on, um, our facilitators, counsellors, massage therapists, support team, they come together for that five days and then they go home again because it's very demanding work yeah. and we wouldn't want to burn anyone out. Yeah. And so this gives them the opportunity to replenish themselves and go home and, and refresh themselves, which is important. Um, obviously, when we have the 24 uh, extra accommodations, we'll be open seven days a week. And there may even in between time, because we often have outside groups who use the centre on weekends for a yoga program or a mindfulness meditation program. So people use our centre uh, for their own workshops when we're not using it. 
Right, okay. But at the moment we're, we're currently conducting 30 five-day programs a year and about 100 workshops out in the community each year. Okay, so what are the workshops that, and, and presumably anyone could go to those? Yes, uh, the workshops are both in Sydney and in Canberra and in Penrith and Parramatta and Wollongong. So we, we take this information out into the community. And also beyond that, uh, we work a lot when there are natural disasters. And so I've been out to Ningen and Burke and Trangy and Warren and uh, those areas that have been really doing it tough during the drought. And then COVID-19 kind of eclipsed their needs entirely and they're not out of drought by any means, many of them. And so uh, we go out into those areas and we also like to do that um, every two or three months uh, for several months because it gives the community a sense that this is not just a flash in the pan, but they can come and call on us in an ongoing way and also many of the people then have chosen to come to a five-day program at the Quest for Life Centre in Bundanoon after they've been on a workshop because they recognise, you know, that they're living maybe with an illness, maybe with grief, maybe with relationship breakdown, maybe with past traumas, all of those things that really tend to surface when you're under the added pressure of another trauma such as drought at the moment. Yeah. Okay, because in my mind I had kind of understood Quest for Life as being a bit of end-of-life care, so lots of people with terminal illness. Um, so yes. are, you, are you running those programs as well as the Moving Through Trauma? Because it sounds to me like you're actually saving a lot of people's lives as well as helping them end, end their life with grace and, and peace. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about Yes, yeah, certainly my work started out in... Uh, cancer and HIV really because I'd just been through the experience of nearly dying from leukemia and then the doctor said well now you're in a remission that you weren't meant to have and it won't last and so at that time this is back in the early 80s I felt that I in many ways I, I kind of understood some of how it was for the people with HIV back in those days because once you had HIV people waited until they had gone to AIDS and then they knew they had six to 18 months to live. And I was very much in that same kind of circumstance that the doctors said, look, the remission that you had might only last a few days, maybe a few weeks. So I kind of related to that living with great uncertainty. And also many of those people were so young, the people with HIV back in the early 80s, you know, they were only 17, 18, maybe had one or two sexual experiences and here they were now with AIDS, you know. So I, my heart really broke for them and then I realised, you know, no one wanted to touch them at that time. They were leaving meals outside of the door in hospital and so I, I agitated until I could start a, a voluntary massage program because I thought, imagine being so sick and no one wants to touch you. I couldn't. I couldn't bear the thought, really. And so I started out there. But then as all of these people came and told me their stories, they told me stories of depression and anxiety and relationship breakdown and sexual assault and sexual abuse, which I hadn't experienced, everything else I had, chronic pain, hospitalisations, uh, 
all kinds of traumas. And it was like, oh, gosh, yeah, I know what that feels like. I don't know what it feels like for you, but I know what that feels like for me. And so as the years passed, my work really morphed more into mental health uh, because behind cancer, behind HIV, behind anything, there's a story and we've all got a story and there's a lot of trauma in our community. I'm still flabbergasted by just the sheer volume of sexual abuse that continues to happen in our communities and, and the domestic violence that continues to happen in our communities. So there's so much work to be done to educate and improve uh, relationships and communication and how we deal with stress and trauma and, yeah, there's a lot to be done. Right. And so I guess for people who can't come on a five-day retreat or can't afford it or whatever it is, I guess you would have learned a lot of coping mechanisms or the everyday things that people can do to sort of manage stress and um, domestic violence or domestic abuse. And um, so in daily life, uh, what can people do to sort of ease those symptoms or rewire their brain or, um, you know, move forward, I suppose? You know, we know from education and from research now that the brain is actually meant to be in our service, not running the show. And for most people, the brain runs the show. And we know that most people are operating out of their unconscious mind 95% of the time. We're just reacting in a habitual way as we always have. And indeed, it's often suffering that stops us in our tracks and causes us, it's either suffering or inspiration that causes us to change. And for most people, sadly, it's suffering rather than inspiration. Hopefully, young people can feel inspired by some vision of a future that will galvanise them so that they're willing to change, to move in the direction of their dreams. But for most people, sadly, it's suffering that gets us to a place where we say, that's it, something has to change, and it's me. I can't change what happened. We call them the Ds. I can't change the diagnosis, the disappointment, the death, the divorce, the despair, the depression, the depletion, the disagreement, the disloyalty. Uh, I can't change the drama, the disaster, but I can change who I choose to be in relation to that. Am I going to be defined by that or can I be more than that? And that's the challenge. So once we get to that place where we say, that's it, something has to change and it's me because I can't change what happened, but I can change how I choose to see it and how I choose to respond to it. And there's this part of the human spirit that says, I know I can be more than this, whatever it is. I know that I can, I can get through this. So there are a host of simple techniques. One of the most useful is just to come to your senses. <laughs> That's what we say to people when they're having a panic attack or anxiety, come to your senses. 
And we say that for a really good reason. Your body is always in the present moment. It's never in the future and it's never in the past. And if you want to train your brain to be fully focused in the present moment, then you come to your senses. Bum on the seat, feet on the floor, touch of your clothing, the air against your skin, any taste in your mouth, any aroma in the air, what falls within your gaze, all of the sounds within and outside the space you're in. Because it's impossible to have a fully-fledged panic and do that at the same time. And the more we come to our senses, the more we stay present to the breath, because the breath is always there. So if we come back to the breath and bring it right down into the belly, maybe even put your hand on your belly and feel the rising and falling of your belly with each breath, these are ways of switching on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your soothe, rest, digest system. So it switches on and that switches off your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight, flight, freeze, fragile system in your body. And that fight, flight system that we all have in our body can get left switched on all the time if we're under a stressful circumstance for a long period of time, as people were through the fires. And, you know, once the fire had passed, people were left in this very uh, anxious state. And when we went into those communities and educated them, of course you are. You know, this is because your sympathetic nervous system has been switched on on high alert for all this time, and you have to do something consciously to switch it off and to turn on your parasympathetic nervous system, which is why deep relaxation is so valuable, why coming to your senses, by staying connected to the breath, staying connected to this moment, rather than letting the brain in an unmanaged way project its fears, anxieties, worries, all the things that might happen, could happen, probably won't happen into the future, or our brain is going into telling us stories of resentment, blame, shame, bitterness, rehashing history in the past. So whenever your brain is telling you stories about the past or about the future, you're actually producing a physiology in your body in accordance with wherever your brain has gone. And so in the epigenetic environment, the environment around the cell and each of your 50 trillion human cells, and you've got far more freeloaders than your human cells because they're outnumbered, way outnumbered by bugs that live in us and on us. So in that epigenetic environment, you're dumping all of the chemistry of your emotions and if that's high stress that's telling the cell constantly, be on guard, be on guard, be on guard, it's very, very wearing for your whole physical system. And we know that this is why when people go through major trauma that you can expect an uptick in cancer, in other illnesses, because people's immune system has been depressed. Because when you have high cortisol in your body, because of stress or trauma, 
cortisol completely shuts down your immune system. Your T cells virtually go to sleep in that chemical environment because that environment was set up to deal with the bear that came into the cave so that we could run like mad or fight the bear. But now the bear is the bushfires, is COVID-19, is your partner, is the boss. <laughs> and the answer is not to run or to fight. And we're left with all of that chemistry in our body that suppresses our immune system. And it was in the running or in the fighting of the bear that we used up all of the effect of those, that chemistry in our body. That all came down and up came our immune system to deal with the consequences of our encounter with the bear. But now the stresses we experience are not those physical stresses. We're sedentary, a lot more sedentary instead of exercising to use up all of that chemistry in our body. And it's very detrimental to the immune system and to our overall mental health if it continues for too long. So sort of going through a process of, um, I guess, halting that trauma cascade, <laughs> you know, is actually going to potentially have really long-term effects. So in terms of your ability to live a long and healthy life. So if you've been traumatised, what I'm hearing is that it's actually the best thing you can do is to deal with it as quickly as possible um, so that you don't get more habits and thought patterns and so forth embedded um, so that you can kind of halt it and then heal it and then hopefully stop those effects going into the future. So, but you must get people who've been traumatized in childhood. So they've been in fight or flight or flee fragile for their whole life. So how do you um, like dismantle a lifetime of behaviours, especially coping behaviours like drug and alcohol and um, I guess abusive relationships and um, self-loathing and all those things? How do you dismantle a whole lifetime of that tangled up uh, behaviour? Yes. Look, it's, um, I'm not saying this is easy by any means, but we do make it as simple as possible in our education. And on our programs, you know, we have 15 participants and six on the professional team. Everyone has individual counselling during the program as well. And then you know, by the time people go home, I mean, first of all, when you've lived with a lifetime of trauma, it, you know, it, it destroys so much when people have been sexually abused in childhood. It, dis, it destroys trust. It destroys a sense of having any faith in your own perception of things. Because as a little kid, you think, this doesn't feel right. Something's not right here. And yet no one affirms your experience. And indeed, we've had many people who, when they've even tried to share what's happening to them with someone who should be there for them, have been told that they're being a troublemaker, that they're making it up and it's not true. And that, on top of abuse, uh, I, I'm, I'm just so in admiration of people who've had trauma in their early childhood and who find their way to a place like Quest because they refuse to be defined by the things that have happened to them. I just think that is so incredibly courageous. 
So we don't do the work. Each person, of course, does their own work. I can't know what's best for another human being. What a presumption to think that I would know what's best for somebody else. It's a full-time job knowing what's best for me. But we can lay it out very clearly for people. So, for instance, one of the things we talk about on our programs is language because when we arrived here, we didn't hold that trauma and then things happened to us and we may have felt abused, we may have felt not believed, we may have felt responsible, invisible, bullied, ugly, we may have felt that we were born to the wrong family on the wrong planet. We feel all these things as children, but we don't have a language to articulate it. So we make up beliefs to explain to ourselves why I feel that way. Oh, it's because my life doesn't matter, it's what I do that matters. But then I've always got to be doing to validate my existence. Or I mustn't ever focus on myself. I've always got to be focused on other people. And then those people are always looking to get it right for everybody else. And they, they don't come from an authentic place within themselves. Or they believe you can't trust people, you can't trust life, and they always keep everybody at arm's distance. Or they sabotage relationships so that they're the person who ends the relationship, not somebody else. So we adapt all of these weird and wonderful behaviours that for a child made absolute perfect sense. But we may still be living with those patterns as an adult. And they're in our language. It's when I say, I can't speak in public, I'm actually speaking out of the trauma of that little person. Mm. If I can say, thank you so much for asking me, I choose not to speak in public, I'm speaking as an adult that recognises I have this traumatised part of myself and I'm choosing not to put her in a position where she might get triggered. But I can't speak in public is speaking as if I am that traumatised little person. I should is often the echo of the nuns or our parents. It's someone else who's got an agenda for us that may not come from an authentic place. So with I can't and I should, yes, I'll be there. Thank you for asking me, but no, I'm fully committed at present. Um, I will, I won't, I've decided to, I've decided not to, but not I can't, not I should. Try. Those people who say I'll try and come on Saturday, they're not coming. Yes, I'll be there. Thank you for asking me, but no, I'm fully committed. So when we never and always is a... You never listen to me. You always walk out of the room. That's when we're loading all of our past issues into the present conflict. Just deal with the present conflict. So when you educate people about language and how to clean up their language so that they're speaking from a more authentic adult place inside of themselves, when you even on that one session on the program, you'll hear people self-correcting in the next session. It's amazing. People say, I'll try, you know, I, I just will. I'll do that. And, and so it's amazing. As soon as people have the information, they implement it straight away. Right. Oh, boy. So where, apart from your programs, where can they get this information? How do you, how do you learn these things? 
Well, I've always been a, a voracious consumer of research, so that's been a great passion and a great love for me, and I, I feel so grateful that I was blessed with curiosity um, because I've always been researching this whole area, and that's why I went and did uh, yoga training many, many years ago uh, because actually in yoga there's a great deal of information about the connection between the mind and the body which is now called um, psychoneuroimmunology, which is such a ridiculously long word to describe mind-body medicine. And so I think people are, are hungry for this kind of education. And what we found through the COVID times is that the online programs have been incredibly popular. And so we're going to continue offering online programs because that will help our reach in Australia and beyond Australia as well. Uh, we had over 150,000 views of the at home with Quest sessions that we were doing every day uh, during the COVID time and, and are continuing to do. And so um, I do an online meditation every week on a Monday evening through Facebook. And so these are ways of continuing to educate and support people in their journey towards greater healing and understanding of themselves. Um, so we, we plan to continue doing the online programs as well as the face-to-face uh, -face programs here at Quest. And I imagine we're going to be busier than ever. Um, just back to your question about funding, obviously for police and paramedics and so on, the insurer pays for them to attend a program. Uh, for anyone else, Quest subsidises every person's particip um, participation by 50%. And then if that's too much for people, we have another fund that we can draw on so that we do our best not to turn people away on financial grounds. Uh, so, that, yeah, we're, we're very committed. And we also have some special grants, for instance, for women affected or people uh, impacted by domestic violence. Either they grew up in domestic violence or they've recently suffered with domestic violence. We have a, a special fund, one from the ACT, another one from New South Wales, that enables us to more heavily subsidise people who may be financially unable to afford to come to a program. Right. You must have a lot of close relationships. Do you work quite closely with people or organisations like Lifeline or Odyssey House or, you know, Reverend Bill Cruz? Like you must have a lot of relationships within the care and support and counselling community. Um, so are you able to capitalise on those? Um, like are you able to kind of get your message out through those organisations as well? Oh, certainly. Uh, look, I think... After 30 years of uh, doing this work, you know, we have wonderful relationships with many different organisations, uh, refuges and uh, many uh, cancer support, carers' organisations, um, all sorts of health centres uh, that regularly refer people to us. A lot of our referrals now come from oncologists for people with cancer or psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors. They just know that if people come and immerse themselves for five days and really focus on education and support, that back comes a, a patient or a client who's really committed to working with them 
to continue to improve their lives. So, uh, yes, we get referrals from, from many, many different sources now. And do you train people there as well? Do you have counsellor training or massage therapy training or, you know, do you, do you have people in allied health services come to you to learn more in how to deal with traumatised people? Yes, oftentimes um, we have health professionals who want to work with us and it's quite a long training path because um, we use a particular language, we... Um, the processes that we use are really well refined and so it takes a little while for people you need to be very skilled in facilitating groups of people with a good deal of trauma amongst them which is why we have six on the team so there's a counsellor there's a massage therapist there are two support people who are there just for your physical comfort they're on duty at night, but they'll get you a glass of water, a pillow, a blanket, a heat bag, whatever you might need. Uh, and then the facilitators are very experienced as well. So those six on the team, and we have several uh, teams that we can pull together. You see, we started running Moving Beyond Trauma every two months and then every six weeks and then every four weeks, and it's probably going to be even more frequently than that uh, in the coming year because of there's just so much trauma now in our communities after the bushfires, and, and they were here in the bushfires we had here in Bundanoon and some houses were lost as well. So we were able to open the centre as, as a drop-in centre for our own local community and provide massage and counselling and all of those things that were really helpful at that time. So, you know, for me, uh, we need many places like this so that people have safe places where they can... Uh, really get good quality support and education to put their lives back together again in a way that's meaningful for them. Okay, so what would be your dream if you could have whatever you wanted in terms of money, no object? Would there be one of these centres, you know, easily accessible to everyone around Australia or around the world or, you know, or do you think online is maybe the, the answer to that where, you know, obviously that would be difficult to <laughs> organise, uh, is online the way forward so that you're available to everyone who's got an internet connection? Look, it's, it's an interesting thing because we found that online, um, I ran a, a retreat because I was due to run a retreat for people with cancer in New Zealand at the time and then COVID happened and, and so we did that retreat online with 22 people and it was wonderful. And even though there was, there was a mother and a daughter and they were on different parts of the screen because they were in different parts of the country, but they had this very deep and, and profound conversation and tears together, even though it was all online. So I was quite amazed how emotionally available and authentic people were in the online community. However... Uh, it, it's not everyone's cup of tea. And certainly some people who've been through the bushfires, the idea of sitting in front of a computer for three days was just anything but that. And so I know we need both face-to-face -face programs as well as these online programs. Um, it's, you know, we're not allowed to hug people. And, of course, when people are emotionally very distraught, 
it's it's very hard to refrain from reaching out and and holding someone when they're sobbing or in tears. So, you know, we'll we'll have to find other ways of really connecting with people and and conveying that compassion and support with our presence rather than with our arms because that's not possible at the moment. And we're going to be open again for programs in uh, mid-July. And we're, we're very fortunate because we can do one person to a bedroom and we can social distance or physical distance here in the, in the main building and in the dining room. So we'll be able to have people here um, in a very safe environment but still have that face-to-face -face component, which I think is really important for some people. Yeah. I guess you've been working in this field for such a long time and so you came to this with a lot of your own trauma. So do you feel as though you've worked through everything that you had to work through or is it an ongoing process? Do you, is it an organic process? Do things still come up for you? You know, I think uh, we're all a work in progress. Beware if you think you've arrived at anywhere. And we often say you don't arrive at a place called peace and unpack. You know, it's a moment-by-moment -moment choice for the rest of our lives. And once you understand the language of reaction, we talk a lot about the difference between a reaction and a response. A reaction is, all, and those two words now are used interchangeably in the media. You'll hear America reacted in this way, responded in this way. They're two very different words. A reaction is always in the body. So if you think about a time when you were really reacting to someone, it's either in the gut or our heart rate changes or our breathing or we hold tension in our jaw, in our neck, in our shoulders. Uh, we feel our head getting chaotic or we feel like we've got a band around our head. So we need to know where do I reactivate in my own body? And if you think about a time when you were really reacting and you were to ask yourself, how old do I feel right now? We're always about three, four, five, six. And what we're literally doing is we're reactivating the physiology of the three, four, five, six-year-old who felt out of their depth, didn't know what to do, didn't know what to say, and living it again in the present moment. A response takes us into new territory. A reaction repeats what we've done before. A response requires consideration. A reaction is automatic. And so we don't say take reactability for your life. We say take responsibility, your ability to respond to the life that you're having. And you might have to weep about it, rail about it, scream about it, write about it, talk about it until you can say, yep, that happened. But I'm no longer living with the consequences of it. I have a story, but I don't live in the story. And a lot of people continue to live in the story for decades. <laughs> and we don't want to... We don't want to say, uh, this is in no way saying that our suffering is inconsequential. It's major. It's consequential. And it takes work to have a story and not live in your story and react from your story all the time. So, yes, I have a story, 
but I can react, of course, but now I'm very, you know, adept at catching a reaction and recognising, oh, there it is. Um, I lived most of my life with a sense of impending doom. And that, for me, I didn't even label it until I was in my late 30s because I just grew up with this terrible feeling that something dreadful was about to happen. But, you know, my brother told me before we were both 10 that he knew he had to kill himself by the time he was 30. And so, and Brendan probably had ADHD or something long before anyone knew what that was. And so he was always falling off the roof, breaking bones, setting fire to the house or whatever. So I lived in this kind of what's going to happen next state. And to this day, I can wake up feeling that impending doom. But now it's like, oh, there's dear old impending doom. It's not who I am, but it is what I am feeling. And again, we do a lot of education around don't label yourself as a feeling rather than I am sad, I am depressed, I am sick. I feel all kinds of things. What if I am consciousness, soul, spirit, life, being, energy, and right now I'm feeling despair? It's not who I am, but it is what I am feeling. So it's not about denying the feeling, but being in right relationship to the feeling so that we recognise, oh, that's, this is despair. Yeah, I can feel it in my stomach. My heart feels heavy. Um, this, it's okay for me to feel like this, and this is how feeling like this feels for me. And then maybe I need to go for a walk or I need to call a friend or I need to make a, an appointment with my counsellor so that we've got some strategies that we can build in to assist ourselves manage these very powerful feelings when they happen. So it's not about you're never going to feel bad again, you're never going to have those feelings again. It's about actually building some structure around that as in what will you respond? How will you respond? What will you do with that? Um, because do you think that some people who've been traumatised, who live in their stories, use it as an excuse to behave badly? Like does it ask more of us to, you know, to actually move on and to heal and to to have a better life because you can kind of get away with things, right? <laughs> if you are kind of like, yeah. oh, all these bad things happen to me. So I, you know, of course I'm going to behave this way. Yeah, yeah. Healing us, I, more of us, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. And I think forgiveness is such a big topic for most people. Forgiveness is never, ever, 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 ever about condoning. It's not about saying that what happened was okay. It was not okay, but it did happen. And so forgiveness is not about I forgive you, I forgive them. It's actually an inner process whereby we liberate ourselves from the consequences of having felt wounded in the past. We no longer react in the present as if we're still carrying any wound from our past. And isn't that a liberation? People think forgiveness is bound up with, I'm going to have to talk to the person. You may never have to talk to that person ever again. People think that I'm saying I'm leaving myself open for this 
to happen to me again if I forgive. I'm never going to forgive. I'm always going to hold on to it. But then we stay trapped with it. So forgiveness is giving up all hopes for a better past. It's to recognise it just is. So weep about it, rail about it, scream about it, write about it, talk about it until you can say, yep, that happened to me. Uh, But I've got a story about that, but I'm not living in that story. And the other one that I find is very helpful, another saying is forgiveness doesn't make them right, but it does set you free. And I think that is a wonderful liberation to look even the perpetrator in the eye and say there's nothing you can do or say that has the capacity to wound me. What a liberation that is. And that's the liberation that Nelson Mandela spoke of. You can do what you like to my body. I'm not, you know, you can do nothing to my spirit. And you see our attitude, we get to choose our own attitude. And we, we may develop an attitude because of our upbringing, but we don't have to stay stuck with that same attitude for the whole of our life. And it's often our suffering that will break us open to wanting things to be different so that we can regain a sense of control over our life and respond moment by moment rather than react And we need to take good care of our physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being, be in clear communication with ourselves. What am I feeling? And if I need to express it, how do I express that in a way that doesn't wound myself or anyone else? Mm. And how can I let go the traumas that have happened, glean the wisdom from those experiences but not live with the woundedness of them? And how do I create a meaningful life where I feel deeply connected to myself, to my friends, my loved ones, to nature, to creation, where I have a sense of place and belonging? Because otherwise we're a helpless victim of our circumstance and we can only helplessly react to everything that happens to us or we're always postponing our happiness. I'll be happy when to some future time. If we're not in clear communication with ourselves, then we're always blaming everyone else for how we feel, whereas they're our feelings. No one makes us feel anything, which I know is very disappointing, but they're our feelings and we need to learn how to be with those feelings. And forgiveness, you know, is such an important component. And But gradually you find that the I am becomes your rock-solid reality and you live from that inner stability and you're no longer buffeted by what's going on in your body, what's going on in the world, by what's going on in the brain. That's the peace that passes all understanding where we're no longer buffeted moment by moment by outer circumstances not even the outer circumstances of our physical body. That's peace. Okay. So what about intergenerational trauma? What happens when you are, like the epidemiology, you were talking about the epidemiology of like the the chemistry of trauma and intergenerational trauma. And so what if you're born feeling a certain way and you don't know how to feel any different? 
if you're yeah. if you're raised by people who are traumatized they were raised by people who were traumatized that if epidemiology is there so you don't actually know that there's a different way to be so how do you figure out that okay maybe this isn't how everybody feels <laughs> maybe something's up with my family um or whatever like it's you don't know what you don't know so how could you identify i could maybe feel better than this well look we need to take on board the fact that if your parents so i'm thinking of our indigenous friends in particular that if if you've gone through trauma it actually has an epigenetic consequence mm. so we know uh, for instance my father came back from the second world war and he had ptsd and I didn't know that until I was writing my memoir just a few years ago because if you bumped his bed or if you did anything that he didn't like, he would be after you with a strap and you had to run like the wind and even then he'd catch you. He was only acting out of his own trauma. But I didn't, as a kid, I didn't know that. I just blamed myself. I got him mad again. So then I married someone who hit me because that's what I was used to. And so we don't know, as you say, we don't know what happiness is if we didn't grow up with that. And we know that at an epigenetic level, the, uh, which literally means that the gene has been switched on to be super alert, that's passed on to your children for at least two generations. So when you think about our Indigenous people, my, oh, my heart breaks for them because we did so much trauma to that uh, amazing culture and picked up people and just put them somewhere else and expected because they know who they are because of the country they live on. They are part of that country. We don't get that, but they get that. We just picked them up and put them somewhere else, you know. It just doesn't make sense to them and it was deeply, deeply traumatising. So until we hear the stories, until we bear witness to the anguish that we caused, that will be an important part of their healing, just as it is when people come here to Quest. And instead of it being a private story that influences so much of what happens in that person's life, when they're given a safe, nurturing, supportive environment in which to utter the unutterable. You see, as soon as we can verbalise the trauma, as soon as we can dance it, sing it, move it in some way, we're more than it because we've been able to capture it into words or into dance or into song or into screaming, into howling at the heavens. But the trauma is no longer an internal anguish. The energy of it has started to move. And that's the beginning of healing. So we have to get the energy of that moving in some safe and healthy way so that people can begin to find a pathway back home to their essential nature because, you know, it's interesting we call it second nature. People say, oh, it's second nature for me to feel like this, to think like this, to react like this. No one ever questions, well, what's your first nature? What was there before the trauma? 
and the impact that that had on you? What was there before the beliefs, the attitudes that you built from that trauma? And that's that return journey back home to something that's more essential, more authentic within us. And that's the sacred within us. And you know that in that way we're all one because the consciousness that enlivens you is the same consciousness that enlivens me. And we see each other as separate, as less than, more than, better than, worse than, different from us. But at first nature level, we're all born of the same substance. We're one family. I don't know if you've seen, it's been on social media, these five different Labradors, all of different, you know, there's a chocolate one and a black one and a blonde one. And it says, we're all dogs. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't matter um, the outer appearances. What is essential to us is unified and comes from that one consciousness that we're all a part of. Right. So... A little while ago, you mentioned that there's a lot of trauma around at the moment. So with the bushfires and COVID-19 and then talking intergenerational trauma, we're talking two generations. So we're talking about a generation of people whose ancestors, um, Indigenous people were heavily traumatised with the stolen generation and everything that went before that. And then we're talking about immigrants. We're talking about World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War. We're talking about, a, you know, there was a century of just a lot of conflict. So would you say that this point in history, we've kind of got this confluence of things going on where there potentially is a much more traumatised population, whether it be in Australia or in the world? Like, um, are people more traumatised than they've ever been or are we just more aware of what trauma is these days? So we have, like, we have the language to define this thing that's going on. I think it's both of those things. I think we, we are much more aware of global stories of trauma and we're also experiencing it ourselves personally through the bushfires and now through COVID-19. So whether there's more trauma than there's ever been or whether there's less resilience than there's ever been, um, because we did also have a generation that you can be anyone, you can do anything, and that's just not true for everyone. Um, and everyone's a star, whereas not everyone is a star. And sometimes we have to really work hard at things to, to be successful. Um, but I, the, the, the problem now is that if we make bad choices at this point in time, they are very consequential. And there have been many times in history where very bad choices have been made. They haven't been particularly consequential. They might have affected that community or that country or that river or that forest. But now the decisions that we make are having a huge global impact. And I think in many ways I feel that for the last 35 years I've been working with people who are on the edge of some major trauma in their life of some description, whether it's facing their mortality facing their despair, their, their depletion, their whatever it might be, facing appalling grief and tragedy and trauma and abuses and so on. But now we're doing it on a global scale. 
And that's why for me, this work is so important to educate people about a pathway to that inner stability and equilibrium that we can find within ourselves so that we can discern how to most appropriately respond to the challenges that we currently have. My definition of peace is it's our ability to embrace every moment, regardless of its challenges, with a quiet mind and an open heart, a heart free of judgment and a mind that's quiet. You see, when the brain is focused and in our service, we have access to some fabulous qualities that we don't have access to otherwise, only when the brain is entrained and focused in the present moment. We have access to insight, intuition, that's our ability to read what's not being said, what's not being seen, wisdom, humour, spontaneity, creativity, compassion. Those qualities are only available to us when the brain is focused and present. Otherwise, the brain is busy projecting fears, worries, concerns, goals, plans into the future, regretting, resenting, blaming, shaming about the past. When the brain is quiet, we have moment-by-moment moment access to those really valuable qualities insight, intuition, wisdom, humour, spontaneity, creativity and compassion, which are the qualities that we most need right now to make wise, insightful, responsive um, actions towards the many, many challenges that we have on the planet right now the challenges of illness, the political challenges, the economic challenges, the environmental challenges, the human sociological challenges that we have right now require great wisdom and capacity to really assist people to find that inner stability within themselves rather than being all over the, the place with their own worries and fears and concerns. Mm. So I guess that way we could focus, yeah, on the bigger picture because when you're kind of caught up in your own whatever's going on in just in your life or in your head, um, you're not looking at the bigger picture and maybe we all need to start looking at the bigger picture or there'll be no bigger picture to look at <laughs> possibly. Um, so as someone who has dealt so much with people who are coming to terms with death, what's your attitude to death now? Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not in a I'm not in a rush to get there. Um, but the rest will be lovely. And um, you know, I, I had two near death experiences when I was much younger. And I know that the best thing that ever happens to you while you're alive is that you die. You know, it's it's a weird thing. But when you die, um, you leave behind this heavy, heavy, this is like a cement block in comparison to experiencing the freedom of your spirit. And once you've experienced the freedom of your spirit, uh, you absolutely know that dying is the best thing that ever happens to you while you're alive. 
and that if you're embodied in the flesh, you've got work to do. Um, we're not here just for a good time. We're here to make a contribution. And we have to make a contribution that feels right for us so that we can end up on our deathbed feeling like, well, that was colourful. Uh, I gave it my darndest. That was a good life well lived. And I've been with too many people on their deathbed who've looked at me and said, I look back on my life and I wonder what it was all about. Why didn't I tell my son I loved him? Why did I live my father's version of my life instead of my version? Why didn't I spend more time with the people that I actually love? You know, and the, to me it's very sad that people leave it to the end of their life to reflect on how they're living. And, and I guess that's why, in a way, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of suffering, not that I'd wish it on anyone, but it's suffering that often gives us the impetus to wake up and to recognise that I have to consciously engage with my life, not just hope it's going to get better, uh, you know, on our table here at Quest, we have a lovely little sign, wooden sign that one of our participants made that just says hope. And we say, yes, but hope has to have legs. It has to be underpinned by effort. It's not enough to hope we're going to get through this time. We need to put into practice the things that will help us to get through this time really well. So hope is not enough. Hope is not a plan. It's not a strategy. It's a, it's a dream of the future, but then we need to start putting in the work that makes that future a reality. Oh, no wonder you're tired. <laughs> You've spent 35 <laughs> years thinking, I've really got to get to work or, I, or I, I, there's just so much to do. So, oh, boy. In saying that, I, I absolutely am still as lit up about this work as I was 35 years ago uh, because it's my vocation. It's why I'm on the planet. And I'm just so grateful that I've found work that I find meaningful to do and that I'm blessed with all of these amazing people who come and tell me the most extraordinary stories. They share that human journey in a very safe and nurturing environment and so I'm constantly inspired by the capacities of the human spirit to not be defined by the appalling things that have happened to people. And so, um, you know, I live with chronic pain and that's very tiring. So that's why I think I'm looking forward to a good long rest and a, a bit of a rest from being in a physical body. <laughs> what kind of chronic pain, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, look, I... When my brother told me all those years ago that he uh, knew he had to take his own life by the time he was 30, I remember thinking, I was nine, I remember thinking, I have to grow up really quickly to look after Brendan. And I promptly grew 23 centimetres in the next 15 months and that deranged the bone growth in my legs and my knees started dislocating and I couldn't stand up, couldn't walk. So I went into hospital at 13 and had my femurs cut and my lower legs turned out 11 degrees and then they cut my tibias and they turned them in 9 degrees and then one leg bowed out so they did another 
osteotomy where they collapsed down the bone on the outside of my leg. They transplanted tendons, they shortened muscles, they lengthened other muscles. Now they give you orthotics. But that was three years in hospital and at one stage they thought I'd never walk again. I was in traction for nine months. So I, I had a lot of surgery, which means then that my I was quite crippled with arthritis in my early 20s, used to walk with walking sticks. Uh, now you'd never know because I don't walk with walking sticks at all. I did have knee replacements a few years ago and unfortunately, whilst now I have terrific knees, um, it set up neuropathy. I think I just had so much surgery and so much trauma to my legs and so now I have neuropathy from my waist to my toes. Um, but, you know, I manage that with all of the things that we talk about and yeah. uh, and medicine, medication too. I'm, I'm, I'm not against, uh, it's not like I'm all for this and not for that. Uh, we need to have everything on the smorgasbord and then the art becomes in discerning what of all of those things is right for me now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you're really speaking from a place of daily experience. So it's not like you've sort of, you know, overcome all your trauma and, uh, you know, still obviously having those days where you wake up thinking doom, doom, but no, <laughs> this is a daily thing for you. You've got like a lot of pain that you're living with and, and yet you're still hard at work helping other people manage and deal with their own uh, pain and trauma. So I suppose I've heard a lot of people say that this generation of people, we're just not very good at suffering. Like we, we haven't um, kind of perfected the art of suffering because suffering is inevitable. And so I think that I was listening to this Korean author actually talking about how in Korea, a lot of the older people are like, oh, suffering, it's just, it's going to happen. So it's just, you just actually learn to cope with it. You integrate it into your life and, and you um, develop the skills to manage it. Whereas we're a generation of people who think that suffering shouldn't happen to us or that, you know, it's, it's unusual. Uh, like, so we're sort of frightened of it and we, um, we don't think that it's, it's necessarily something that is just like, just like everything else, like joy and fear and hope and love. It's, it's just part of the smorgasbord. Um, so is there something you could perhaps offer to help us become better at suffering, knowing that it's, it's, it's part of, it's an ingredient of life, important ingredient. It is an important ingredient because it's, it is often what wakes us up. Look, if you didn't want suffering, wrong planet. This is where it all happens. You know, I'm a person, I just love roller coasters. A lot of people don't like roller coasters. But even for me who loves roller coasters, I wouldn't get on a roller coaster without fastening my seatbelt. And what we need to help children understand is that life's a bit of a roller coaster ride. You've got no idea what's over the crest or around the corner. But it is your job to find and fasten your own seatbelt. And your own seatbelt is the sure knowledge of how to care for yourself physically, so your nutrition, exercise, sleep. Make sure those are happening. So physical, mental, quieten down your brain so you've got access to insight, intuition, wisdom, humour, spontaneity, creativity, compassion. Keep yourself in good company. 
Be in company that uplifts you, encourages, inspires you to move in the direction that you want to. You need to look after yourself emotionally. Be aware of what is this that I'm feeling and how am I going to express it in a way that isn't wounding to myself. We wound ourselves by what we eat or smoking or over-drinking or drugging or whatever it is. So how am I going to look after my emotional world and how am I going to express myself in ways that are skillful? And spiritually, what do I need to do to feel that my spirit can come alive in the environment in which I'm living? Am I doing work that's meaningful? Do I get myself into nature? Is it singing? Is it dancing? Is it being under moonlight, starlight? What are the things that give me back that deep sense of connection to my own spirit? So that when, if we've looked after ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually, and the roller coaster swings to the left and you could have sworn it was meant to go to the right, you're more able to say, well, the scenery's not what I expected. However, this has happened. How am I going to respond to this? If you don't have a seatbelt, you're more likely to get stuck with, why me? It's not fair. I don't deserve this. It should have happened to someone else. Whereas if you've got a seatbelt and you know that this is a roller coaster ride, and we don't tell children that. Indeed, we go out of our way to protect them from death, from dying, from dead bodies, from trauma, from disasters, whereas really these are experiences in which we can teach our children how to manage through challenging times. And we don't do that by what we tell them because kids never listen to what you say. They watch what you do. So are you looking after your nutrition? Are you making sure that you exercise, that you sleep? Are you making sure that you have some quiet time? Maybe you tell your children, when the rainbow ribbon is around my door handle, don't even think of coming in because that's me having some quiet time. And I brought you a rainbow ribbon to put around your door handle for when you need some quiet time. So that we begin to educate our children in how to look after themselves physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually so that we're more adaptable. You know, Darwin actually said it's not the fittest and the strongest that survive. It's the ones who are most adaptable to change. And that's where we now need to really focus our education for children to give them the ability to adapt to rapidly changing circumstances because now that's where we're heading. Uh, certainly COVID-19 shown us that, how the world just changed in a, in a blink. Well, we cut our emissions by 25% too. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> and so we know that actually you can change things, you can change them quite quickly. So how are we going to maintain our inner equilibrium given that everything around us may be changing very fast. And to me, that's a, a, a tremendous, um, a tremendously important piece of work to do with our young people now because they don't want to live, you know, there was a whole generation that was so consumed with brands, you know, we had to have the right brand clothing and, oh, my word, does it matter? And now, hopefully, 
We've got a whole generation saying, what on earth are you finding any value in that? That doesn't matter. This matters. And they're getting more focused on what does matter. And we need to do that from a very steady, insightful place so that we can discern where to put our energy, where to put our time in really skillful ways uh, so that we can end up looking back on a meaningful life. Happiness is not about the stuff. You know, that's the great part about nearly dying and then not, especially the not. Um, you know that happiness is never about the stuff. It's about our relationships, our relationship to self, to others, to life. And that's something that we can all do something about so that we live. Happiness comes from living a meaningful life and actually a life that's in service in some way to life. And for me, it's how do we align ourselves with life and be a living expression of that? So how do we bring life forward into creation? Because love, life and God are all the same thing for me, you know, and you can only experience love, life, God in the present moment. So we have to be here now with a quiet mind so that we can begin to discern how best to respond to the challenges that we might have in our own individual life and certainly in our collective community life. Okay. So service, you talked about service. So do you think service is part of healing, like an important part of healing trauma is actually you know, turning outward and going, okay, how can I help somebody else? Like, so I guess one way of being of service would be to donate some money to you, right? Like, so how can people just donate money to you or can they, how do I support you? Thank you. Yes. You know, the Quest for Life Foundation is a, is a registered charity, DG1 charity. And uh, we can only do the work that we do because of the amazing financial support that we receive, many of which comes from private donors. And, you know, some people who've been on our programs who are on a pension put away $5 every month to send to Quest just because they're so grateful for what they experienced when they were here. And I treasure those donations every bit as much as the, the very large corporate uh, donations that we get as well because we really want our work to be available for everybody that needs it not just for people who can well afford to pay and so and of course this has been a very challenging time where we've had no income for many months now and and still providing services but with no income so yes we're incredibly grateful for any a donation that people are able to make to the Quest for Life Foundation at this time uh, because I can see that we're going to be busier than ever in the coming months as we do open for face-to-face -face programs again and we really want to be able to subsidise people who are financially challenged so that we don't turn anyone away on financial grounds. Okay, so do people donate via the website? Can you just yeah, log on and... Yeah, they can ring us up with a credit card or they can log on to the website and there's a donate button there 
or I think through our Facebook page as well. And any of your listeners too are very welcome. Uh, Every Monday evening at half past seven, I do a a deep relaxation practice uh, through the Patria King and Quest for Life Facebook page. No, sorry, Patria King Meditation Group Facebook page. And you can ask to join that. They're free every Monday night at half past seven. And that's a wonderful way too of just coming together on a regular basis and um, and doing a, a deep meditation together. Well, you know, I know, I don't know what you think about gurus, but it sounds to me like you've developed this incredible community of people who are like love you <laughs> because of what you've given them and, and how much better their lives are because of you, because, because of what happened to you and what you did with that. So I suppose, um, do you think you're a bit of a guru? I mean, a lot of people <laughs> would maybe put that on you. How do you feel about yourself as the figurehead? Of- a man said to me after a program here at Quest many, many years ago, he said, Patria, you're the closest thing to a guru I've ever met. And I thought, that sounds close to a gnu. So I'm happy <laughs> to be a guru, but no, I won't be a guru. <laughs> you know, we're all teachers and students to each other constantly. I learn from every person I ever, ever met. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not about, you know, me in some elevated place helping someone who's less elevated. Definitely not at all. We're all a work in progress. We can all shed a bit of light on one another's paths and we'll all find our way home. Thank you so much, Patria. I'm so grateful for your time today, especially because you're so busy. <laughs> so thank you so much. And um, and I welcome. strongly urge everyone to donate some money because you don't need money. What you need is um a strong sense of inner peace and community. (laughs) We need a bit of money, but not that much. So um, thank you so much, Patria. That's a pleasure. You've been listening to That Shit Show. If you like what you've heard, head to the Facebook page or the website for more information. It's thatshitshowpodcast.com. You'll find show notes and more episodes to download. Thanks so much for joining me.